From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And, you know, contrary to rumor, I'm, I'm still co-hosting a podcast. It's been a few weeks. <laughs> uh, we've had some special episodes of, of Extra Credit. I, I took some time off. We all took Thanksgiving off. But we're I back was, in just in time. Yeah, I was exploring some options, trying uh, out some potential co-hosts. It's, that's fair, you know. I think the last two episodes were especially strong. Uh, you know, <laughs> the podcast wars, you know, you, you have to keep your friends closer and your enemies closer in the podcast wars. It's just cautionary tale for us all. But it is December, and it feels like it's December rolling straight into January. It feels like uh, a lot of legislative news broke uh Broke this week, including a couple of big shakeups in 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 the, the face of the legislature. Yeah, the minute we came back from Thanksgiving break, it was like, boom, here it is. It's full on. Uh, but two very notable shakeups uh, on the legislative front. Senate Education Chair Dean Mortimer uh, announced uh, Nathan Brown at the Post Register had it first. Uh, Senator Mortimer will not seek re-election. He served six terms in the Senate. Previously served a term in the House. He's been Senate Education Chair. He was a longtime member of the Budget Setting Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. So he'll be back for 2020 for the session ahead that starts in a month, uh, but he won't be seeking re-election. So that's going to create a, a leadership opening at the top of Senate Ed. Speaking of another leadership opening, House Minority Leader Matt Erpelding, a Boise Democrat, resigned from the legislature his last day uh, is December 6th. Right. He's taking a job with the Boise Metro Chamber, will not serve at all during the 2020 session. So it's going to create a leadership vacancy for the minority party, for the House Democrats, and there will be a new member appointed to the legislature to fill out his spot. And that pres- that process is just getting underway, but two big shakeups, yeah. and the session hasn't even started yet. Yeah, these are a couple of big names. There are a couple of folks who are very prominent, have been very prominent in l- legislative circles, uh, in education circles, particularly uh, Dean Mortimer. Um, yeah, this is, you know, a changing face of the legislature, and we're not even into the uh, the filing period. We're not even into the, right. the candidate announcement period. Um, I'll be interested to see, in Mortimer's case, what he tries to work on here in his final session, because, you know, he was a member of the governor's task force uh, that just finished its work in November. He abstained from voting, but, so he right, didn't tip right. his hand on if he's leaning one way or the other. Uh, except he did say he had some concerns and questions about the effectiveness of the career ladder. That's the state's salary law, the mechanism for paying teachers or for paying school districts for paying teachers. And potentially a multi-million dollar proposal if you right. try to expand the career ladder or phase in an expansion of the career ladder. That, that's a spendy proposition in, in a tight budget year. So I don't know if that becomes a priority, if that becomes a, an issue that he, uh, you know, that he stakes out an opposition to an expansion of the career ladder. I'll be really curious to see what, uh, what he does in terms of the funding formula, because there's an area we know uh, he's been passionate about this, and he, you know, he served on that funding formula committee for three years. Uh, you know, he's, he's pretty invested in that process. At this point, I do feel comfortable saying that the legislature will discuss and debate the funding formula proposal again during the upcoming legislative session. I think there's actually going to be multiple proposals coming forward from multiple different lawmakers. And so even though this didn't get out of committee 
during the 2019 session. I think it'll be back. I don't know exactly how it will play out or what the support will be like, but I think it'll be back in a big way and it'll be another big part of the debate for a lot of lawmakers. Um, they, you know, they didn't view it as it died and was buried in 2019. They're going to take another run at this, maybe multiple versions. So that'll be interesting for me to watch closely. I think you've got a number of key lawmakers who want to get some resolution on this issue, who want to get some closure on the debate over the funding formula. For Mortimer, in his last year in the legislature, it takes on even added significance uh, for him personally, I'm sure. But you, you still have some other pretty powerful folks in the legislature who have invested a lot of time and, and, and energy on this topic. Including the Speaker of the House, yes. Scott Bedke, and including uh, House Vice Chair of JFAC, Representative Wendy Horman, uh, who's carried the public school budgets for years. She was a member, one of the leaders of the Funding Formula Interim Committee. Right. So we don't know yet what this is going to mean down the road in terms of you know what happens with the Senate Education Committee after the 2020 elections, because obviously you have the 2020 elections. Uh, you know, you you then you know see who winds up back in the Senate or in the Senate, right. and then uh, legislative leadership gets together after the election and sorts out the committee chairs, uh, the committee assignments. So it's a little early to speculate what what might happen. Other than just to point out that the current vice chair of Senate Ed is Stephen Thane, Republican from Emmett, a uh, pretty big player in education issues. We talked particularly about advanced opportunities programs that he sponsored and really got the ball rolling on. But again, uh, he would need to uh, run for re-election and win in 2020, and then it, you know it's up to leadership. But potential leadership often goes with an experienced vice chair who does not chair an existing committee, but not always. Uh, and that there's a lot of assumptions in there. He would have to want re-election. He would have to get re-elected, which probably won't be uh, a problem in his district. Um, but that's a year away before we'll know who. It, it'll be December 2020 when we find out who the leadership chairs will be uh, for that 2021 session. Right. And, and as you say, the succession plan tends to follow seniority, uh, Vice chairs tend to have an inside track on, on chairs when they come available. That's how uh, Mortimer became Senate Education Chair a few years ago when, when John Getty uh, lost in a primary in, in Coeur d'Alene and was voted out of office. That created a vacancy as Senate Education Chair. Mortimer moved into that chair. You know, it, that's how it happens quite often, but not always. Not always, yeah. I, I did have a chance to talk with several of Senator Mortimer's colleagues this week at a big conference, uh, and they painted a picture of a hardworking guy, a guy whose background wasn't in education. He wasn't an educator. He's a, a home builder and a businessman in Idaho Falls. But they said he was one of the harder working members of the legislature. Uh, got there early, uh, early in the morning when he was a member of JFAC, was one of the last people to leave at the end of the day uh, because he chaired Senate Ed. Um, but folks talked to me about, his legislative colleagues talked to me about kind of how he geared up and, and, and uh, became a big player in the education policy setting arena without that background, without that traditional background um, in the education arena. And so folks said that he'll be missed. Uh, he played a big role. Obviously, he was the Senate floor sponsor of House Bill 296. In the 2015 session, that became the career ladder law, mm -hmm. the $250 million program to increase pay uh, for teachers. That was certainly one of the signature pieces of legislation Senator Mortimer was involved with and sponsored. Right. So we will we'll continue follow to follow. Yes. I mean, this is how it's going to 
And, and I mean, I don't mean there's going to be a shakeup every week, but between now and early March, we're going to be learning about legislators' plans for re-election or for not running for re-election. Uh, by the spring, we'll be learning about new people who want to challenge, uh, perhaps some incumbents, challenge for some seats in the legislature. And so uh, this will kind of, uh, these announcements will kind of come and go uh, between now and early March, I would say. And we'll probably be surprised again. Mm -hmm. and, and one other ramification to uh, Dean Mortimer stepping down as Senate Education Chair, we will probably, possibly not have uh, the Monday poetry readings uh, that uh, Mortimer uh, launched Senate Education with every week. So it could be... Uh, Edgar A. Guest, it, right? It could be, uh, this could be a setback for Edgar A. Guest. Well, and I mean, I was thinking about that, but I take solace in the fact that you have one more year of Monday afternoon poetry readings with the senator. And I know you're excited for that, which is why I'm going to allow you to continue covering, Kevin, the well, Senate Education Committee I, this year. I appreciate that. So Merry uh, Christmas. A, Don't act like I didn't get you anything. Uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's a void in my life that's been filled. That's that's outstanding. Yeah. Um, quickly, uh, Matt Erpelding's departure from the legislature was, was very sudden. I yeah. mean, it was very abrupt. The, the news came out early Wednesday morning. His resignation letter was, was released to the media. Uh, he's gone as of Friday to take a job at the Boise Metro area, the, the Boise Metro Chamber of Commerce. Yep. Um, and what I found interesting as I read his resignation letter that, you know, that was a factor in his decision. And it was one of the first things he said in his letter was, I need to, you know, worry about my professional career. I have to worry about, you know, advancing professionally. He's not the first young legislator of, of both parties who I've heard say that. I thought of Brian Cronin, Brian another Cronin. Boise Democrat from, from Boise. five years ago yeah. or so, um, five, six years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that. Uh, he was a, a, a big force for the minority party during the Students Come First debates, Brian Cronin yes. was. Um, so I remember that. That came to mind. But you've thought of a couple others. Yeah. I mean, th and this is something we've heard before. I mean... You know, legislators, you know, they don't get paid very much. Uh, they, they get paid as a part-time public servant. But for a lot of legislators, this really becomes a full-time job. For somebody like Matt Erpel, who was also in legislative leadership and was very active on his party's behalf trying to get Democrats elected around the state, um, it was a pretty big time commitment for him. So while, while it was a sudden announcement and a surprising announcement because of that, that, that professional consideration, that's something we've heard before. And, and, you know, if you wonder sometimes why the legislature tends to skew a little bit older uh, towards retirees, towards farmers, uh, towards folks who are maybe independently wealthy, you know, that, that's definitely a factor. It's the seasonal nature of it. And it's this idea, and we hear it a lot, but this idea of a citizen legislature. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where you don't, I mean, unless you're independently wealthy or retired, uh, you can't really be a career politician in the Idaho legislature and make any money at all doing it. It may have gone up a little bit, but I think it was around $18,000 a year salary plus per diem and expenses when they travel during the session. But if you're raising a young family at all... Which Representative Verpolding is. He has yeah. young... He is an infant. You know, it's... Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely not a, you know... A, a, a lucrative professional salary. opportunity. I mean, legislators are... You know, definitely not in this for the money. And, you know, so I think that was, that jumped out at me as I read his resignation letter. But we've also, we've both spent enough time on the House floor, you and I. Uh, you know, Erpelding was kind of the leader of the, the loyal opposition. I mean, yeah. he was a very forceful uh, advocate uh, for the Democrats who were, you know, clearly, you know, 
pretty heavily outnumbered on the House floor. So th there were a lot of moments w where we saw him really, you know, you know, crossing swords with Mike Moyle and Scott Bedke. And, you know, that's uh, and, that's, and, a, that's kind of a, a, a difficult, that's, difficult job. That has to be taxing. Uh, and and, and it, that has to be a taxing position to be in. And I'm sure that weighed to some extent uh, and that there may have been some frustration. The last time I saw Representative Erpelding was at the Boise State Diversity Forum uh, from September or October, yeah. a couple months ago. Right. Uh, but that campus-wide discussion uh, with legislators, he was there representing the Democrats. But yeah, certainly loyal and, and, and vocal part of the, Dem the Democratic Party there. Uh, but in a way that uh, certainly, Representative Rubel, another Boise Democrat, who I think is running for his leadership right. position. Right, she's the assistant minority leader, and she's expressed an interest. And in also her. someone who is very active about getting up and uh, making that floor debate on behalf of the Democrats. And so, you know, they, they will have leadership elections. We'll kind of follow that uh, a little bit, and it'll sort of shape how uh, the Democrats will approach the 2020 session a little bit. But big news, uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And stay tuned because the filing period is, as we alluded to, that doesn't really come until uh, till March. We right. won't really know for certain who's running for what and who's who's hoping to stay in the legislature, who's hoping to, you know, challenge incumbents. You know, that filing period is, you know, still a couple of months away, but we'll watch that pretty closely. Yeah, for sure. Spent some time Wednesday listening to Governor Brad Little uh, deliver what is sort of, you know, it's not state of the state; it's sort of state of the state. Uh, the uh, appetizer. The, yeah, it's the uh, it's the preview. It's, yeah. the, it's the trailer. If you go to the theater, talking a little bit about what maybe to expect in the 2020 session. What did the governor have to say? Yeah. So this was the annual Associated Taxpayers of Idaho conference. Kind of a big deal. It attracted a crowd of 500 people, legislators, lobbyists, business leaders. Governor Little, not super surprising, predicted a tight budget year, uh, but did say that. He guaranteed that we can expect him to push for investments in K-12 public education, specifically in the areas of teachers, and I assume he means teacher pay, uh, and literacy. And we already know about the literacy initiative. But he did say that uh, public education will be one of the few areas where he's going to consider new funding investments. And we already know that because of the 1% uh, rescission uh, in the current budget year, the 2% reduction that almost all state agencies uh, we'll have to comply with next year, uh, other than public schools. Right. He mentioned the task force a little bit without directly saying what he thinks about the task force recommendations. He said the task force worked hard between May and November. He said they came up with solid recommendations. That was the word he used was solid. And he said he's weighing those recommendations now, and they will likely factor heavily in his upcoming legislative agenda. Didn't tip his hand as to say how he would prioritize them or if he is accepting them all or if he's going to bat for one or two of them. So the ATI address didn't have the specifics that we will expect to find come January 6th mm -hmm. during the State of the State address, but it's very much the, the preview, the appetizer for the session, and that's how everybody treats it. Right. Uh, kind of a sneak peek of this session and uh, no surprise for us, but education issues, again, we think will be front and center, maybe one of the few areas, um, perhaps other than healthcare and a couple of other things, where they might actually consider um, some new state investments in what will be a tight budget year. Right. And, and I think what he kind of said about the budget beyond that is that, you know, he's really not looking to, to make 
you know, he's not pushing the grocery tax. Yeah, he said that uh, my promise to fund education and to make education my top priority comes first before repealing the state's grocery tax, which is something that he's favored and come out in favor of in the past. He also said, I think I need to take a look at the stability of the state budget, and we need to have the money in the bank before we spend it or before we take on something like cutting the grocery tax. He did have this line where he said he is open to responsible ways to look at easing the burden on the grocery sales tax, uh, but he didn't say exactly what that would be, and he, and he very much said that my priorities for education and overall budget stability come first before my interest in repealing the sales tax on groceries. But we know 2020 is an election year. I just have to expect there will be some sort of a tax-cutting effort, especially out of the House, which I think is where they all have to originate from, whether it's the grocery tax or property tax or something else. In the words of Lenore Barrett, it's always a good time for a tax cut in the minds of particularly House Republicans. So a bunch of budget line items that we'll watch for closely come January 6th when Governor Little presents his budget uh, proposal. Is there a line item in his budget for any kind of tax relief? Uh, does he come out of the gate with some sort of a proposal? You know, Maybe it's not a repeal of the grocery tax. Sounds like it won't be, but maybe there's some... Yeah, some incremental step that he takes in that direction, and how much would that take out of the revenue stream? What sort of line item do we see for teacher pay? Do we see a line item to expand the career ladder to right. veteran teachers? Which what is what the task force of, talked about. Do we see a line item to reflect the task force's recommendation on optional all-day kindergarten? What sort of line item is there for uh, literacy in general? What sort of line item is there for the opportunity scholarship? A lot of stuff to watch for and a lot of stuff to digest in barely four weeks. I mean, we're, we're, we're coming around to the beginning of the legislative session, whether we're... You getting excited yet? <laughs> yeah, like it or not, we're about uh, four and a half weeks away from the beginning of the legislative session. So, you know, so happy holidays and keep that in mind. Yeah, rest well this month yeah, because no uh, it's going to be crazy come January. You mentioned the budget situation. Do you want to talk about a story that you're working on right now as we speak? It's not a story that you've completed as we record the podcast, but you're taking a look at the higher ed side of the equation and how universities and colleges might deal with the budget cuts. What are you looking at? What are you working on for your story? Right, right. We're piecing this together and you'll be able to see this at idahoednews.org. What I was curious about, what I'm trying to gather is a sense of how are the universities and colleges responding to this budget cut, you know, which we alluded to. Yeah. While K-12 is spared from mid-year budget rescissions, uh, budget reductions, and further reductions next year, that's not the case for higher education. Correct. They're on the hook to reduce spending by 1% this current year and 2% in the following year. Correct. The trends that I'm seeing at this point are maybe not terribly surprising, a lot of the savings are going to come in one way or another in personnel. We already knew that the University of Idaho was talking about uh, using voluntary staff furloughs to save a million dollars this year. Um, we know from some of the other, uh, other colleges that they're looking at you know, hiring freezes, uh, keeping positions open so that they can you know, achieve some savings along the way. Um, while positions are, are dark, reviewing those positions, deciding whether they really need to refill them or do you kind of move the work around or do you hire a part-time employee instead of a full-time uh, employee. So as you would expect, with, with a lot of money in any agency uh, tied into personnel, 
the personnel would be an area where you'd see some, some reductions. So we're trying to get uh, a little bit more detail, uh, try to get a sense of what the impacts of these uh, mid-year cuts are on campuses around the state. So we'll have a, a roundup of that that you can look at at uh, idahoheadnews.org. Yeah, the homepage will be a good place to follow uh, the end of this week, uh, certainly by early next week, if not the end of this week, to find that. One other area, we were talking about budget cuts, one other area that will not be reduced is funding for the Idaho Opportunity Scholarship. And Kevin, earlier this week, you did take a look at what we know, what the latest is we know about the Idaho Opportunity Scholarship, its cost, and who's receiving uh, that scholarship. But what, what were you looking at in regards to that very popular right, scholarship? Right. So, so the numbers that we got, and this is what it looks like for this fall, is as you would expect, there's a pretty big increase in the number of students who are getting help from the state to enroll in college. The legislature added money to the Opportunity Scholarship. Uh, we're now spending more than $20 million uh, in scholarships. That's an increase from $13 million the previous year. So increase in scholarship dollars means more kids are getting scholarships. More than 6,000 uh, students are getting scholarships to go to a, a state school. These are scholarships that uh, can be worth up to $3,500 per year. Um, a couple other things kind of jumped out at me. Um, there's been so much discussion about the Adult Learner Scholarship, right. which is now what, what it's being called. It started out being called the Adult Completer Scholarship. By whatever name you, you want to call it, this scholarship really is not taking off in really big numbers. The numbers are up, but they're not up in, in huge numbers. Uh, about 80 students, adult students, are getting opportunity scholarships. These are uh, One for every minute of that long floor oh, debate no about extending it to adult learners. Sorry to, to derail no, it there no, for no, a second, but, but this was a big point of concern, particularly for the Idaho House a couple of sessions ago, and it, like you said, about 80 students. Um, this has been such a flashpoint in the debate over college scholarships. I mean, as you alluded to, the, the critics have really uh, been outspoken about this. They, they don't like the idea. They, they feel like this is uh, supporting uh, college dropouts, which is well, right. which is kind of a pejorative way of looking at it, uh, and that's going to break the bank on the scholarship program. Well, that's not really the case. So if you only had you know eighty uh, adult uh, stopouts getting the scholarship this fall, on the other side of the coin, you have supporters of this saying this is a really important program. This is kind of that low-hanging fruit that we need to, uh, to, to harvest if we're going to try to get closer to the 60% post-secondary completion goal. Well, 80 students isn't a whole lot of low-hanging fruit. I mean, it, it's, it's a small step towards trying to improve uh, the post-secondary numbers. So really, for all of the scrutiny that this adult learner scholarship has received, uh, the, really, the numbers aren't all that, uh, all that big. It's right. not that big a program. And the other bottom line number that really kind of jumped out at me when I was uh, researching this, when I was looking at what's happening with, uh, with the Opportunity Scholarship, even with the increase in funding, even with more students getting the scholarship, there's still an unmet need. The wait list, right? There's a waiting list of roughly about 1,700 students who are eligible, who meet the grade requirements to, to get one of these scholarships, uh, but there just isn't enough money to go around. So that's, uh, that's a concern, and it'll be interesting to see if that gets debated in, in in the next legislative session. As you mentioned, Governor Little wants to keep this uh, keep the scholarship spared from budget cuts. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be more money put into the program to cut into that you know, unmet demand. 
but we've seen it before. This is uh, this is one of those issues that you know legislators on both sides are pretty passionate about. Yeah, for sure. I expect that this will be uh, something we hear about again during the upcoming 2020 legislative session. I would imagine, anyways. Yes. Well, I think it kind of wraps us up this week and gets you you know that much closer to the beginning of the legislative session, ready or not. Yeah, ready or not. One other thing I wanted to touch on just briefly this week, I took a look at the appeals process for the Master Educator Premiums. I had a story at IdahoEdNews.org earlier in the week, uh, but the short version of that story is State Board of Education is going to review 114 Master Educator Premium portfolio applications between now and the end of the first week of January. 102 educators appealed their original decision, and then state officials found a potential error in the database system that may have improperly disqualified 12 applicants. And that Master Educator Premium Program, by the way, we covered it most of the year in 2019, but that's the new program designed to provide a financial incentive, a financial award known as a premium. I want to say it's $4,000 a year designed to reward the state's highest performing veteran teacher. So if you want to find out a little bit more about that appeals process and why that's taking place, I know there's a lot of interest in the Master Educator Premium Program. Those were some of our most read stories this summer as that program was being rolled out and the kind of frustrations and delays with the application process there. So we did cover that and we will be back in January to let you know the results of that appeals program as well. I think next week we're going to have kind of a special episode Focusing on a project that you're going to unveil just before the end of the year, right, Kevin? Right. We've talked a little bit about literacy in this week's podcast. We talked a lot about literacy. It's been such a, a major push uh, from the governor's office, from the task force. What I'm trying to do with this series, and it's a series that's going to run starting on December 16th, is look at where do we stand here with $26 million of new money going into literacy programs around the state. Uh, with this increased emphasis, with this new test that, that's been rolled out just in the past couple of years, how is it working? How is this uh, affecting students? How is this uh, affecting student outcomes? Uh, talking to parents, talking to you know, teachers and administrators and politicians, uh, focusing not just on the politics of this and the process of this, but getting out into the field and you know, looking at some success stories, some, some bright spots around the state really in-depth look at the literacy project. Or, or I'm trying to look at this in, from as many angles as possible. Uh, we'll have eight stories, uh, some graphics, some video, uh, a lot of different elements, and hopefully you know, shed some new light on where we are in literacy. And we will be back next week with a new edition of the Extra Credit Podcast to tell you all about the literacy project, give you kind of a, a peek behind the curtain, a little bit of the story behind the story there to launch the literacy project Right so now, it sounds like I'll be back at least for one more week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, don't, don't count on it. Um, uh, right now, we're planning two more editions of the Extra Credit Podcast after this one, two more for calendar year 2019. Of course, we always reserve the right for an emergency podcast at the end of the year. Right now, we're thinking there will be two more, and then we'll be back January 3rd to get you ready for that 2020 legislative right. session. So roughly speaking, we're looking at literacy next week, and we'll probably a do year a year review uh, on in two weeks on the 20th. That's assuming that uh, you know, there isn't a, a shake-up here. A, a, you know, a podcast shake-up. You know, uh, you know, the podcast wars are never... <laughs> they're never settled. There's never... 
They're never lasting truths. No, uh-uh. Uh, all right, well, thanks so much for uh, for coming back to, to host the show, yeah, Kevin. We really, out of retirement or something. Really appreciate anyways. you having back. Uh, but we do have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast each and every week, breaking down this complicated intersection of education policy, education politics. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week. <laughs>